So I didn't get this clear. Um, did your parents move to U.S., then you got born in U.S., right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, why did they move? Right. Um, <clears throat> so I think like a lot of, um, if I'm speaking on behalf of uh, South Asian uh, immigrants of my father's time, so he uh, left India to, um, do his, um, postgraduate education in the U S and the 1970s, I think during that time, while you did have some, uh, migration going on, Mm -hmm. I think in more recent, uh, years you've seen, you've been seeing a lot more, uh, South Asian immigration to the U S, um, than in the past. Um, but during his time, um, he, I think, was unlike a lot of his peers in the sense that he was absolutely in love with American culture, um, just, you know, with the English language. And he used to tell me how he would just like, you know, get books from the library in English and just swallow them up basically because he was just so (laughs) interested in the culture and Mm. really wanted to have a life there. Mm. And so for him, it was just out of, you know, this wonderment and, you know, wanting to have an adventure for himself. Um, he actually married my mom in an, in an arranged marriage, um, mm-hmm. which is very common in South Asian culture. Mm-hmm. And so they both came here together back um, in the late 80s, early 90s. And I was actually born in the early 90s. And so I'm a millennial, a <laughs> proud millennial. <laughs> um, and so uh, even though we, we did live as a family in the UK for two years when I was, you know, very young, mm-hmm. um, we moved to California when I was about seven years old. And I pretty much was in California um, for my entire life up until I moved to Italy, which was in 2020. So, um, so you're technically yeah. UK or California? I don't know. Oh, in California. So we were oh. actually in the UK for two years when... Oh. Yeah, very short time. I don't even remember. I have to go back and look at pictures and <laughs> talk to them about what they recall. No but yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, interesting. So did you have an interest to do a medical degree or do you think it's an influence of family that made you want to do a medical degree at first? Right. Um. So it's interesting you bring up that question because... I feel like when I was younger, um, you know, I, I feel like when I reflect on what really excited me as a child, I like to think of how I was very extroverted as a child. I remember playing games with my cousins when we would visit them in India, where I would pretend to be a news broadcaster or, you know, a host of a television show. Mm. So I was very much into, you know, very vocal activities and talking and talking about stories. And I, I think when I think back about think back to like what I was really interested in. It's things that I'm actually finding a new passion for now, which is communication and writing. Mm. Um, I think the science thing came about because yes, my family is very entrenched in STEM. My, I was saying earlier how my uncles were um, in chemistry. I Mm. had one uncle who is a chemistry professor. My grandfather was a chemistry professor. Um, my dad's in engineering, for example. Mm. And so this kind of um, importance of science and STEM, especially, was really taught to me at a young age. Mm. And I can say a lot of, in a lot of South Asian households, it is like that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, so I definitely think there is, was that influence for me to pursue science based on that. Um, but I would say that my interest in science and my passion for it developed as I got older. Um, once I realized that, you know, it's something that you kind of have to sit down and learn. You can't just, you know, absorb it magically, or at least mm. not the majority of us can. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is an intimidating subject, but I think once you give yourself the chance to sit down with it and take time to learn it and also take time to learn how to learn, mm. it's not that scary. Um, it's something that, um, you can learn to love and you can learn to share that love with other people. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think that's what I would say as far as like how I ended up kind of sticking with science and being influenced to pursue it. What did you mean by you were an extroverted child? Are you no longer extroverted or what do you understand by extroverted? Yeah, um, I would definitely say as a child, I had no limits. Um, mm. I was very open to talking to people and not really thinking about what they would think of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think a lot of people can relate to this where, you know, as you go through puberty and you, you know, especially in the US where you start, you go that have that transition from elementary to middle school, mm. you start to feel this pressure, peer pressure. Um, about, you know, what are people thinking about me? Um, you know, I don't want to do anything embarrassing. I want to make sure that I do whatever I can to make sure people don't think I'm weird. People, that people will accept me. And when those pressures come about, Mm. it's not uncommon to kind of shut yourself down in certain things that you used to do so freely as a child. So for me, I kind of went through this transition from being this very extroverted, you know, eager, energetic child to a very kind of quiet, um, introspective teenager. Mm. Um, you know, I had all these ideas I wanted to talk about and share and discuss and all these opinions I wanted to kind of, you know, have this discourse with, but, you know, I was more scared about what people would think of me. Um, and let that prioritize how I interacted with the world than what I actually wanted to do. And unfortunately, it was something that I didn't really come to terms with until very later on in life. I would say, you know, now I'm at a place where I'm more comfortable with it. But, you know, going through high school, even undergraduate, and even my early years of my PhD, that was something that I was still struggling with. You know, that fear of being able to be vocal about something mm-hmm. and not being afraid to have people disagree with you or have people not like you or have people think you're weird. Um, And so I kind of say this to kind of connect back to when I said my interests as a child were, you know, involving communication and writing and things related to that. I think I'm now at a happier place because I'm able to do those things. Yeah. Right. And even though I'm still in science, which is something that, you know, I'm still very passionate about, Mm. I'm able to combine that expertise I gained with passions. Exactly. Right. Amazing. Um, uh, When you talk about growing up and being so conscious of what people say and what to do and how to act around people, we were having this conversation yesterday with someone and um, we we're talking about how we do the same things all over again every single 
day because that's how we found the world doing things and you want don't to look weird as you said like weird and different and you want people to like you but that's when creativity and innovation and new things are killed like mm-hmm. we don't get to do things that are different we're always doing things the same way and so also someone else was also saying um a father actually uh, was saying that as children when they when they are young they're so curious and they're so mm-hmm. out there they say whatever they want they're not thinking what people are saying about them or what people think and they have ideas but they they're normally shut down either by society or by education mostly mm-hmm. like they're designed now to like they're curated to in a certain way and their creativity just gets muffed and the difference between that child and another child in the same situation um but in a different environment in terms of um how the environment was enabling makes them different when they grow up like how they approach issues um what kind of fields they are in if they are actually doing a job they are passionate about mm-hmm. as in there's so many things that happen between a child who starts talking to finally being an adult and those things that happen in between them define what they will finally do when they are grown ups don't you think so oh i i absolutely agree um it's interesting you bring that up and i think it's a very important thing that you bring up because um i've had a lot of conversations with colleagues with friends with family about you know why do we have issues with people you know either being scared of science intimidated by it mm. or just not simply interested and it all honestly stems back to early education mm-hmm. you know um when i was a kid um you know we, if you're born into a family that really prioritizes education and science it's mm-hmm. one thing mm-hmm. but you know i did have classmates who just in you know purposefully or intentionally just checked out whenever science or math was brought up mm-hmm. or they automatically assumed that it was something that they would just never understand and mm-hmm. um to me i always thought that as you know very sad to see because you know if you already tell a, a young child in first second grade that they're just never going to understand or that it's too difficult mm. you've you've eliminated someone from pursuing something in a field that they could yeah. have made a huge difference in mm-hmm. and so you know you hear a lot of stories about how people are trying to kind of make high school students interested again in science or you know even adults but mm. honestly we need to really focus on getting to the kids you know getting to the early early education level young and brains. young brains and you know even telling young girls that they can do anything they can be a physicist they can mm. be a rocket scientist and but also saying you know if you have a passion for something that's not science related that's fine too same yeah. thing to young boys mm. um i think just you know um whoever is involved with early education or who wants to be i think we really need to prioritize the fact that we need to introduce young children to everything as much as possible just letting them know what their options are um and allowing them to 
experiment, explore all of these different things and allowing them to come to the conclusion as to what makes them excited, what makes them passionate about something, what makes them want to get out of bed and, you know, talk about this topic, you know, for hours and hours and pursue creative things and mm. pursue innovative projects, you know. I mean, of course, you know, as a young kid, you're you're kind of limited as to what you can do, you know, financially and physically, but, you know, um, introducing young children to as many things as possible is absolutely important um, in order to kind of maximize the potential as a society mm -hmm. as to what we can pursue, you know, for generations to come. So, you know, that's, I never uh, hesitate to tell that to people whenever we talk about things like this as talk mm -hmm. about how can we get people more interested in science? I always mm. tell them we need to talk to the we need to, we need to the target young the young children. Yes, yes, the young brains exactly. And um, I don't know. And I think we need to be more intentional about the teachers' profession. Like mm -hmm. we we don't take the teachers' profession as a very serious profession, um, right? And it's the most sensitive of professions. It's the what it's what makes this world. It what it is what makes an engineer or it what makes an exactly. musician or it is that teacher is the contributor. People talk about their teachers, especially when they were younger. Either if mm -hmm. it, they were bad teachers or they were good teachers, or if they were supportive teachers. People, most of the time, apart from the parents, people mostly talk about the teachers. And Absolutely. I think we need to be more careful um, and take the teacher's professional uh, profession more seriously, especially the kindergarten, elementary school, that that age. That, exactly. You know, when you take your child from your home and give them to a teacher, I think we should we should be more serious about evaluating what kind of teachers are there, what kind of uh, enabling environment is there for that child to grow their brain, not to shrink their brains into and shrink their imaginations and their creativities. Mm. Wow. Yeah. No, I I absolutely agree with you. Um, mm. It's I mean, as you were saying that, I was actually thinking of you know, my fifth grade teacher. Um, mm. so when I was around 10 years old, um, she was, I, I think of her to this day because of how interactive, engaging she was, you mm. know, she made learning fun. Um, mm. she's absolutely one of my most favorite teachers. Um, and even though, you know, in elementary school, you cover a number of subjects, you don't just focus on one thing. Mm. She made everything we learned absolutely fun. And, mm. um, you know, I think about, you know, new parents or parents with young children and you think about like how you want to invest in them and invest in their life. Mm. I think investing as much as you can in those early years is absolutely important. Well, probably more important than high school or middle school or anything like that. Um, because, because of the reasons you said, um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how much more we can really emphasize this point, but it is absolutely critical that we think about, how we educate teachers that, mm. you know, want to go into this noble profession and how we empower them with tools so that they can kind of help, you know, foster this kind of um, curiosity in these young students, these young mm. brains. Mm. Um, and I think, 
I think we, I think as a society, we need to kind of get away from putting people with money on a pedestal or putting people、mm. that kind of fall into lucky things on a pedestal、mm-hmm. and putting people that are in these very critical professions on that pedestal and giving them more respect, giving them more tools, giving them more compensation for what、more、they money, do. More money, yes. Exactly.、Um, I think as a society, that is something that we definitely need to adjust in our attitude for sure. And if you're talking about STEM, if you're talking about making、uh, girls、uh, educated, if you're talking about all those things, we need to give more education to the teachers who are going to handle those children. Because one teacher handles so many kids, one teacher、mm-hmm. can influence so many kids. So why don't you put enough? Emphasis and money and everything and education to the people who are going to handle the next generation.、Exactly. We should do that, right?、Mm-hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about education,、um, I come from Kenya, and、um, we have, a, of course, a very different educational system from different countries. And、mm-hmm. I usually like to know what kind of educational system、um, is where. You, Uh, was where you are, or is where you are. So,、mm-hmm. for you, for example, moving from can you explain how it is like moving from home to school to university? What is the path like, like、right. uh, to your PhD? Because also you also mentioned you moved from your、um, from your degree to your PhD, which is different、yes. from you know our system, so I'd like you to just explain that in brief, if you. Yeah, yeah. of course.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, so normally in the U.S.,、um, the kind of standard education, mandatory education, is from kindergarten through grade twelve.、Mm-hmm. Uh, kindergarten through sixth grade, so from about five years old to eleven years old, usually, is the elementary school stage. Mm-hmm. So you know the early years, like we were talking about, is the most critical. That's in that elementary school stage.、Mm-hmm. Um, usually, middle school ends up being either sixth grade to ninth grade or seventh grade to ninth grade. Sometimes it's called junior high,、mm-hmm. um, but oftentimes it's middle school.、Mm-hmm. That's your kind of、um, you know students are kind of in that prepubescent pubescent stage and. It's that intermediate education.、Mm-hmm. Um, high school usually ends up being ninth through twelfth grade, so about、mm-hmm. four years long.、Um, sometimes you have students that end up taking their GED, so they take that instead of finishing high school and getting a high school diploma. Wait, other times, oh yes.、Um, so, <clears throat> and once in high school. Um, depending on how a student is performing,、mm-hmm. uh, if they're not perform- performing too well,、mm-hmm. um, they can opt to take something called a GED.、Mm-hmm. So that is basically kind of like a certification,、um, so that they can kind of go on and do something、um, industrial or not necessarily、um, if they、mm-hmm. don't want to necessarily pursue college.、Um, otherwise, normally students finish off、um, with a high school diploma、mm-hmm. um, in their twelfth grade. So around seventeen, eighteen years old, and then in the U.S., the um, uh, you know, collegiate education is um kind of divided into different um formats. So, um, you can pursue um if you know based on your finances. Um, because one thing I do want to clarify is I think a lot of people know this, but in the U.S., um, yeah, collegiate education is not um. 
paid for unless you have scholarships or, you know, financial aid, mm-hmm. um, which is also an issue in itself. Um, but there are other countries out there that, you know, compensate for that. In the U.S., that is not the case. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you finish high school, your options are, you know, going to something called a community college or mm-hmm. a junior college, mm-hmm. which is a little bit more affordable for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, and normally you can finish that within two years and get something called a, an associate's degree. Mm-hmm. And with that, you can kind of go on and find a job or you can go to a four-year college and finish the last two years of the four years at that college. Um, A lot of other students, they can go straight to the undergraduate four-year college, four-year university. They don't have to go to a community college. Mm -hmm. Um, And then normally, yes, you spend about four years. Um, In my case, I actually finished in three years. Um, It really depends on, you know, the flexibility of the school, Mm -hmm. what your goals are, what you're able to afford, um, you know, how intensive your workload can Mm -hmm. be. Because some students in the U.S., Yes, per semester. Um, because some students, they take on jobs while they're going to school to help pay off their um, tuition. Jeez, yeah. um, so it depends really on the student's circumstances, um, the classes they're taking, and what their goals are. Um, and most students and most people that go to college, after they get their four-year undergraduate degree, they normally just go on to find work. And okay. so a lot of careers, uh, for example, engineering... Um, nowadays it's not so much the case, but at least when I graduated from college, I knew a lot of my peers that did take engineering as their degree, go straight away into work and actually find really, you know, well-paying jobs, um, with their engineering degree. They didn't necessarily have to do a postgraduate to, you know, find a, a more lucrative career. Um, and then in my case, since I was in biology, um, and because of my interest in research and my, um, kind of desire to kind of continue on. Mm. After undergraduate, I was able to apply for PhD programs. And so you do hear a lot of people, you know, doing a master's. A master's Mm. is in the U.S. about two years. You Um, still pay? Yes. For the master's, you pay. Mm. um, But for the PhD, you don't. Um, For most science PhD programs um, that I know of and that a lot of my colleagues have, um, you know, enrolled in, the PhD program is completely paid for as far as uh, tuition, and you are given a stipend. So it's almost like you have a job when you are a PhD student. You're getting paid to learn. You're getting paid to do research. Um, you say something about the master student. Yeah. So the master's student, um, it, you can. So in the U.S., um, you can take a master's and you know finish in two years, and then again go off and find work, or you can do the master's and then apply to PhD programs. Mm. Um, the only thing with that is that when you do something like that, um, you may not exactly, it depends on, uh, the, the research project you do and it depends on, you know, what your research topic is as far Mm. as when you might finish the PhD degree. Mm. Um, but normally a PhD degree takes about five years. Um, sometimes it can take longer, you know, rarely does it take shorter, but mm-hmm. it, it does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of other countries, a master's degree is required before the PhD. Mm-hmm. But normally what I've seen is for PhD, um, for applicants who did their undergraduate in the U.S., mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have to do a master's. It really depends on the program. Um, mm-hmm. In my case, since my I'm a U.S. citizen, I did my undergraduate at a school um, 
in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do a master's. Um, I think for some international applicants who are coming from abroad and they are coming to the U.S. for the first time and are hoping to get into a PhD program, mm-hmm. a master's may be required in, the, in that situation. It really does depend on the school and the program. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the U.S. is unique in that sense in in the sense that if you do your undergraduate in the U.S., you are most likely not going to need to do a master's before doing a PhD, which is, which saves time. I think Um, (laughs) it's kind of helpful. You've said something about, um, you don't have to pay for your PhD. Um, where does us get the funding to pay for their PhD students? Right. So, um, we have, um, foundations such as the national Institute of health. Mm -hmm. Um, we have a lot, NIH, yes. And so within the NIH, there are a number of different um, departments. So for example, National Institutes of Aging, um, and a number of those departments are able to kind of offset the costs in, in, um, in relation to fellowships and grants and things like that. And then a lot of these universities, um, uh, depending on if they're public or private, are funded by the state. They are mm-hmm. funded by private grants, private um, donations. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of avenues to kind of support these programs. Um, that being said, um, it's not as though these programs will take in any applicant. Um, mm-hmm. They are very um, strict as far as how many students they are able to take on mm-hmm. and how many students they're able to support. So in my case, I entered a class of five other students in my um, cohort. Mm. And even from that, we had to find labs with professors who had the money to take on a student. Mm. So there may be instances where, uh, you know, a professor may have money to take on a student one year, but then the following year, they may not have that fund or that, Mm -hmm. that amount of money ready. So you may have to find someone else who can take you on. So even though there is to your work. Oh, so, so normally that is why one good thing is that within the first year of PhD programs in the U S you are, uh, it's required that you do rotations. So rotations allow you to kind of spend a, you know, a semester or half a semester in a lab Mm. to not only um, get to know the professor and get to know your lab mates, but also, you know, discuss with them and see if there are funds um, available for you to work there. Mm. So that first year is very critical in figuring out if there is space for you and making sure that you are going to be in a financially stable place because there have been stories of, um, labs getting um, uh, uh, their funding discontinued Mm -hmm. and students having to kind of scramble and figure out um, their financial situation. Um, In situations like that, I have heard of students um, being able to get compensated through uh, being TAs or teaching assistants. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of these programs make it clear that they're not going to leave you, um, you know, in a, in a desk. Yes. Stranded. Um, they're going to make sure that you find some funding Mm. if not through your, uh, research, uh, position, at least through a teaching position. So, um, a lot of these programs, at least the accredited programs are equipped to handle these types of situations. There's something you said, uh, I don't know. I started you saying something when you're talking about, um, the PhD. Um, 
the the funding of the PhD or I think yeah something to do with that I'm not sure what you're trying to say yeah um well basically um at least in my situation the funding was made clear from acceptance so mm. after receiving the acceptance letter you are notified how much you will get paid for the year as far as a stipend how much uh no money uh, don't have to say. And, oh normal so yes um so it, again it really depends on where the school is so for example in a, a school that is in california or new york is going to pay a a bit more than what you would get paid let's say in middle america mm. um because it really depends on the cost of living um oh. and how much you know things are in a particular area so let's say let's if i go if i reflect i don't mind sharing i think mm. it's important information okay. um i i mean of course you know with how things are going with inflation i can't really comment on how things are right now mm. but um in mid 2000s when i or 2010s when i was um starting mm. Uh, uh, one school in New York offered about about thirty four thousand a year, mm. um, and my program in California offered around thirty one thousand mm. or thirty thirty one. Yes, and so it, you know when you compare it to other jobs, especially in industry, mm. it's it's nothing. I will I will admit it is nothing. Mm. Um, but you know as a as a student and if your goal is to get the phd mm. um it's really not going to take too it's it's not going to be too detrimental in the sense that if you're living on your own you're supporting yourself you're mm. you know what your goal is and you know it's going to get done at a certain time mm. the time will go by quickly in a sense in the long scheme of things um so you know in the short term yes it's not you know the most lucrative position but mm -hmm. you know it it can lead to a lot more um lucrative positions later on in life which is i think much more important than mm. um worrying about the short term okay um what about um just for someone who's listening from US mm -hmm. um how did you get your phd or how what what would you advise when someone is looking for a phd Right. As a BSc graduate. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I started out, um, my interests were obviously influenced by a personal experience, a personal issue I was going through. Mm -hmm. But I, but if I were to look back and think about like all of the things that are important when trying to find a good lab to do your PhD in or a good environment to do your PhD in, mm -hmm. um, it's really going to be difficult just to decide on that until you go and meet the professor, you go and meet the lab mates, mm -hmm. you physically go and meet these people. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to look up, you know, a professor's work or a lab's work on mm -hmm. PubMed and, you know, see which journals they published in and see how often they publish. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. But I think as a PhD student, it's going to be so incredibly important to understand if that environment is good for you um, at a personal level, mm -hmm. emotional level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had my ups and downs in my early years because I was having a difficult time finding good relationships in my work environment. But then, you know, I ended up meeting someone in a similar position as mine, and we ended up being really great friends. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a visiting scholar in my third year. And, you know, it, that year was one of the best years of my PhD because mm -hmm. 
I had a friend. I had someone to have lunch with. I had someone to take coffee breaks with. Mm -hmm. I had someone to vent about failed experiments with. I mean, those experiences, I think having the opportunity to have a friend, having the opportunity to have people that you like being around is just as important as the research you're doing. I think if you end up in a lab that is doing research that you're not exactly super excited about, but the people in the lab, you know, are exciting and fun to be around Mm. and your boss is, you know, someone that you click with, Mm. I would say go with that lab versus the lab that is publishing in nature, you know, Mm. every month, you know, just, (laughs) just to throw it out there. Um, I think, you know, as a, as an incoming PhD student, definitely prioritize your mental health, your emotional health Mm. above all else. I will also say that, it's, it, it can be difficult to really find that, especially in something in a world like academia, mm. but it's not impossible. Um, and, you know, I will also say that if you start in a lab and it's not, if it's making you so, if it's hurting your mental health and emotional health so much that it's making you miserable and mm. it's impacting your work, mm-hmm. I think it's it's important to get out and find something that will make you happy. Even if it means sacrificing a year, Mm. do what you can to put yourself in a very good place so that you can produce good work and so that you can be a good person to other people. Mm. Um, That is, I think, my biggest advice when you're looking for programs and looking for a lab to join. That is absolutely important, I think. So that you can be a good person to other people. Do you want to expound on that? Right. Because, I mean, if let's say I I use the example of my most recent uh, postdoc, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, 2021 was a very difficult year for me in that sense, because Mm -hmm. I would wake up absolutely depressed, very angry, Mm -hmm. um, you know, very short tempered. You know, I I'm I'm not happy. I was like that. Mm -hmm. And it showed. Um my interactions with people weren't the best. Um, you know, I, 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 the anger I felt, I felt so angry that I almost wanted other people to know how angry I was. Mm. And it made me sad because I know, or I knew that I was so much, I was capable of being happy. I was capable of being, you know, a light in someone's day who, who needed it. But I was not in a good position to give that to other people because I was not in a good position myself. Mm. And I think once I came to that realization, it was me trying to figure out how to get out of that negative state of mind so that I can be happier, so that I could bring happiness to other people in my interactions, in my day to day. And, you know, I think just being happy yourself, it, it, it makes you... It, it does so much for your health in a way, because when you're happy, you're less stressed and, you know, being less stressed really impacts how you physically feel. And, um, for example, I think where I am right now, I'm less fatigued. I'm more motivated each day. Mm. I'm not, you know, I'm not uncontrollably angry. I'm not uncontrollably crying. I'm in a much better mental state of mind so that I can, you know, be there for other people in a good way. 